One of the top stories of 2017 is a carryover from 2016. Construction of pipelines to carry natural gas through the mid-state. Clearing the way for the Atlantic Sunrise Pipeline has already begun, even as protests continued from property owners who say the pipeline is a danger to the environment and wildlife, will ruin property values and land, and disturb sacred Native American lands. Earlier this month, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission rejected the latest objection to the pipeline. Last summer, Smart Talk featured a discussion of an investigative report into FERC and how rare it is for the commission to disapprove of a pipeline project. Joining us on the program today is WITF State Impact Pennsylvania reporter Marie Cusick. Marie, welcome to the program. Great to be here, Scott. And we're also joined by Kristen Lombardi and Jamie Smith-Hopkins, reporters with the Center for Public Integrity. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. Jamie, I want to start with you. Uh, this was a pretty extensive report, and as I mentioned, it was uh, something that uh, that the three of you were working on over uh, several months. So this isn't just something that uh, you put together over a couple of weeks. Tell us the backstory of why you looked at FERC's record. There's a lot going on with pipelines at the moment, isn't there? Yeah, that's right. Um, the backdrop, of course, is the shale boom. In the past uh, decade, companies have pulled a lot of natural gas from the Marcellus and Utica shale formations in your region. So what's happened is sort of this follow-on pipeline boom. People want to move more and more gas to other markets. So there was an uptick in pipeline proposals right away. You could see it in FERC's record. Companies started updating older lines. Um, They were reversing the flow of gas. So instead of taking it into the region, they could push it out. But the real boom is happening now. In a single year, this is 2015, Firms came to FERC with proposals for 11 significant pipeline projects starting in uh, Pennsylvania, Ohio, or West Virginia. Um, And those are new or expanded pipelines. Uh, Some of them stretch hundreds of miles. Some of these pipelines are already under construction. Um, FERC approved five of the 11, and four of um, uh, of those five start in Pennsylvania. The rest are awaiting a decision. So let me just mention one stat to explain how big this is. If they're all approved... These pipelines would double the amount of gas that could flow out of Pennsylvania, Ohio, and West Virginia. Double. Wow. That, that does kind of put it in perspective. Kristen, FERC is charged with making sure that uh, new gas pipelines are in the public interest. But opponents call it a rubber stamp for the energy industry. You look back over decades of the agency's decisions. What did you find? So let me just step back and explain that FERC actually dates back to the the mid-1970s. It was created during the Carter administration as an independent agency within the Energy Department, and it describes its mission as reliable, efficient, sustainable energy, which means it really sees itself as facilitating energy infrastructure, and that includes state electricity transmission lines. It includes gas infrastructure projects like storage facilities, um, and it includes uh, new interstate gas pipelines. Um, for, for new pipelines in particular, it's the primary agency that oversees environmental reviews, which is something that every major federal project has to undergo. And we wanted to see, you know, we were, we were looking at the boom itself in these new pipelines coming online. Jamie mentioned that FERC has approved five. Almost all of the rest have received um, preliminary approval, and they're on a path to being approved. And we had been hearing from critics that the agency is really a rubber stamp. So we wanted to see how typical this uh, near-perfect approval record for the boom 
was, you know, in general, what was the agency's record on, on gas pipelines, and we examined pipeline cases on file in, in FERC's uh, library and found the agency has only rejected a proposed pipeline twice in the last 30 years. Um, that's out of hundreds of proposals. On occasion, it has delayed or rescinded approval of projects that don't meet specific conditions that it places on certificates. But for the most part, uh, at every turn of the regulatory process, we found that, that the agency really does favor pipeline companies over communities that could be impacted, landowners that are affected, and, and even the environment itself, which you know, a lot of people would consider um, factors uh, that you weigh when considering what's in the public interest. And what was one of, one of the really interesting things, we wanted to understand why this favoritism exists. And we found that FERC really does have very, very cozy ties to gas industry um, and, and energy companies in general. For instance, we found that 80% of former FERC commissioners, and there have been 35 FERC commissioners in the, in the course of the agency's existence, left FERC straight for energy companies. They, they work for energy companies or they work for their law firms uh, or consulting groups that represent them or they work for trade groups that represent them. And that kind of pattern is actually even evident in FERC's rank and file. We, we obtained ethics documents that employees are required to file whenever there may be a potential conflict. Um, and those documents actually showed that since 2012, dozens of staff members, just rank and file employees, have had to recuse themselves from their own work while they're seeking jobs at energy companies or companies that support um, big energy companies. And at the same time, we've, we filed um, records requests and received a lot of uh, agency emails and calendars dating back to 2010 that show that the people who are really requesting FaceTime with commissioners and staff or who are wooing them with invitations to parties or dinners are representatives from energy companies or their trade groups. They hardly ever uh, hear from members of the public environmental groups or public interest groups. And so that's part of, of the favoritism. Well, there's a lot there, but I want to get back to a couple things that you, you mentioned, Kristen. Uh, the, the two denials of projects in 30 years, I mean, on the surface, you see that and, you know, raise its eyebrows, obviously. But in your reporting, you, you did hear from some former FERC commissioners who said, well, one of the reasons that there have been so few uh, denials is that uh, the companies are putting out millions, maybe billions of dollars on some of these things, and that uh, they want to make sure that everything is lined up, ready to go. They're going to submit a good proposal before it even gets to FERC. What do you say to that? What was the response to that? Well, I'm going to let Marie uh, tell you that because she actually sat down with the people who told her that, you know, face to face, and she can tell you what they said and, okay. and the response. Yeah, hey, Scott. Um, so Jamie and I were in D.C. for for a few days last month and, and talked to uh, a whole bunch of people. We talked to former staffers at FERC. We talked to former commissioners. And that's because FERC itself does declined our repeated interview requests, so they actually wouldn't talk to us for this story, unfortunately. Um, their their response, the FERC's response, was we're a quasi-judicial agency, so we have to be really careful 
Um, and we, we sent them a long list of written questions. Um, they didn't answer some of them, basically said, go read our 20-year-old policy statement on that topic. Um, but again, we did talk to you know as many former staffers and commissioners as we could. And they really said it's, it's not fair to look at that low denial rate, as Kristen mentioned, those two pipelines in 30 years that they've rejected. They said there's so much time effort, money that goes into these projects. They are multi-billion dollar projects. I think one of the former commissioners said these are not some yahoos walking off the street proposing a pipeline. Um, so that they say throughout that entire multi-year process that bad projects are inevitably weeded out. I think one of the uh, former heads of the FERC office overseeing pipelines, and he said those those two denials are, are examples of where the people who wanted to build the pipeline were frankly dumb enough to try to run it through the whole process and get to a, a no decision at the commission. So he basically said it will become clear to anyone along this multi-year process that this isn't going to move forward. It's a bad idea. Um, so basically, if a company does what it's supposed to do, if it dots all its I's, if it crosses all its T's, it's going to get approved. I mean, another gas industry executive with a big pending pipeline proposal, he compared this situation to high school. And he said, you know, the kids in high school, they understand what the requirements are. They go through four years. Maybe they make adjustments and changes along the way. Sure, some kids might not make it. But if you do what you're supposed to do, you're going to get your diploma. You also have a quote, and uh, and three of you can jump in here whenever you want, obviously. Um, You also have a quote from a former commissioner who said that uh, under the guidelines that uh, FERC has, there's really no leeway for turning down a project. And that is if the company comes in that wants to build a pipeline and and they're meeting all the qualifications, there really is no reason for FERC to say no. Yeah, they've described what they see their role is is very limited. Um, So they say when protesters and people come to FERC's offices, they should go down the street and try to talk to Congress. Because if you want the law changed, if you want our responsibilities or our scope expanded, talk to Congress. Or if you just generally don't like natural gas or natural gas production, you should go to your state capital because it's the states that regulate the production and the production happens before the pipelines are proposed. Have there been people who have gone to Congress? Absolutely. And? And, well, uh, I guess Jamie can probably address that because we talked to one of the congresswomen. I'll let her get into that. Yeah, there are members of Congress who have um, some serious concerns about the way that FERC operates. They've been um, requesting changes, putting in bills. um, But, uh, you know, I I think everyone's noticed that Congress doesn't get a whole lot done. um, And and there's a lot of debate, too, about whether FERC should be – doing more along the lines, as, as, as some opponents have suggested, or whether the process should be even faster than it is, which is sort of a, what another contingent of Congress thinks. Really? Where are those congressmen from? Gas-producing states? Yes, that's true. Um, and, and, and other places in some cases. Um, but they, they're seeing this purely from a infrastructure is good, energy is good, we need to, to get it out. Um, and there, and there's, there's support um, from some contingents as well for exporting the gas. Well, you see, that's just it. I mean, what, what you just said is uh, there, uh, there does appear to be uh, a, a real sediment that, uh, you know, natural gas, we're talking about something that's cleaner than burning coal, uh, that this will uh, make the infrastructure stronger and uh, there will be a, a, a lot of money made and uh, it's it's something that's reliable. So, and I'm kind of a pushback question here, why is that a bad thing? Who wants to take that one? 
It's, Kristen, do you want to yeah. talk about that? Sure. Well, I mean, one specific slash point uh, around these new pipelines has to do with, with climate change, and you're correct. Um, natural gas is a cleaner burning uh, fossil fuel than coal, and when you compare it to coal, it is... Um, it has uh, half the planet heating carbon dioxide, you know, for every every for the same energy output and a fraction of the toxic air emissions. Um, what opponents and and primarily uh, environmentalists are concerned about is that gas is also primarily composed of methane, which is another very potent uh, greenhouse gas. It's a short-lived yet very potent greenhouse gas. Um, on a on a twenty year time span, it's about eighty six times uh, as powerful as as carbon dioxide in warming the planet. And methane uh, leaks throughout the gas supply chain. It leaks at the the drill heads, the well heads. It leaks at processing facilities. It leaks along the pipelines, though less along the pipelines. It especially leaks at compressor stations. And so one specific flashpoint has been over climate change because FERC itself has only until very recently um, uh, tried to evaluate uh, climate impacts of new pipelines. Its assumption is that gas always replaces coal and that has a climate benefit. It assumes that these new gas pipelines are feeding new gas plants that are replacing dirty coal plants. But that's not always the case. We found, uh, and Jamie can certainly speak to this, um, markets where the gas is is already, you know, it's already um, uh, uh, present, you know, in the market. It's, it's already, uh, and so new pipelines would saturate the market uh, with gas. Um, what environmentalists have been pushing FERC to conduct are deeper analyses of greenhouse gas emissions. What are the emissions starting at the drill sites through the pipeline to the power plant? That's called a life cycle climate analysis. And they have been pushing FERC since about 2013 to conduct these deeper analyses. And they have been um, buoyed during the Obama administration by the EPA itself, which really tried to get FERC to consider uh, a more comprehensive uh, climate uh, analyses where they would uh, analyze and estimate greenhouse gas emissions released across the system. I mean, Obama's EPA argued that FERC has a duty, a legal duty, to evaluate a pipeline proposal's climate impacts under federal law, and it got pretty peeved, uh, certainly towards the end of the Obama administration after repeated reminders to FERC that it's their legal obligation to do this under the National Environmental Policy Act, um, which is the act that, it, you know, requires FERC to do the environmental reviews in the first place. Now, former FERC commissioners de that we spoke to definitely disagree with this. Um, they say they don't have authority to, to analyze climate impacts beyond the pipeline itself. Um, and for those opponents that think uh, FERC should be doing this, um, they need to go to Congress. One of the things that I thought was really interesting about this whole debate, because it really does come down to the interpretation around uh, NEPA itself, this National Environmental Policy Act and what it requires FERC to do and, and what it doesn't, um, is that opponents basically say, you know, FERC is 
the lead agency responsible for implementing NEPA, which requires cumulative environmental impacts be analyzed uh, for any major federal uh, project. If FERC's not doing this, then nobody in federal government's doing this. Mm -hmm. And this is infrastructure that is going to lock in our habit of burning fossil fuels at a time when we really need to to pair that habit back. I want to talk more about the, the climate change aspect of this in just a moment. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. As one of the top stories of 2017 on Smart Talk, this is a program from last summer that featured a discussion of an investigation into the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission that approves pipelines. We're talking about a, a report this week by uh, WITF State Impact Pennsylvania and uh, the Center for Public Integrity reporting on FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission that approves natural gas pipelines. And uh, we know that uh, that has been a big news item here in central Pennsylvania and all over Pennsylvania the last couple of years, but especially now. Our guest, WITF State Impact Pennsylvania reporter Marie Cusick and Kristen uh, Lombardi and uh, Jamie Smith uh, reporters with the Center for Public Integrity. So I, I wanted to follow up, Kristen, just to, which we were talking about just before the break, about the climate change aspect of this. As you mentioned, FERC says that is not their responsibility, that that's something that uh, they, they shouldn't even be considering. Uh, what's their explanation for that? And as you mentioned, the Obama administration's EPA said, oh, yes, you should. Yes. Um, well, FERC doesn't say they, they shouldn't. Well, for a long time, FERC all but ignored climate impacts of new pipelines. It's only, it's only been uh, in the Obama era that it did begin, and especially in the last year, that it did begin to uh, evaluate and calculate the greenhouse gas emissions that would uh, be released um, by pipeline proposals. But what they... Um, what's the word, resist, is this idea that they should be responsible for e, uh, even deeper analyses, calculating emissions throughout the gas supply chain. They see themselves as responsible for evaluating only those emissions from the pipeline itself and associated facilities, which would be compressor stations, which when it comes to releasing uh, any emissions, compressor stations are the, the big um, facilities and, and sort of release points, um, there aren't much emissions along the pipeline, pipelines themselves. The emissions overwhelmingly come from the drill heads and the power plants and, of course, the compressor facilities. So they, they do evaluate and have reluctantly begun, I would say, begrudgingly begun to evaluate emissions uh, along the pipeline. And they say, uh, and Marie and Jamie can chime in on this because they interviewed uh, the people themselves, that they really see their responsibility, their jurisdiction, the regulatory jurisdiction being about that actual point from A to B. Uh, so, Marie, yeah, go ahead, jump I'll in with that. I'll just jump in real quickly. I think the key issue here is also that there's no question that the natural gas boom has helped lower U.S. carbon emissions. It's improved air quality, as Kristen mentioned. It is replacing coal, which is a much dirtier fossil fuel. So gas is the cleanest kind of fossil fuel. So that's all good. The real question is um, how long, as is, gas has been 
pitched really as a bridge fuel to help us get to a clean energy future as we transition away from coal and other dirtier sources. Gas is seen as a bridge. The question is, how long is that bridge? How much of this really climate damaging methane is leaking? And if this infrastructure, like a pipeline, is being built that you know can have a lifetime of fifty years, um, you know what does that mean if we really need to get to deep decarbonization by mid-century? I mean, that's the way. You know, despite what the Trump administration has been doing, pulling out of the Paris Climate Accords, um, that that's the way the world is headed. That's where the economy is headed. Um, so the question is really is how long can gas play a role? And are you building infrastructure here uh, that's designed to be, you know, used far into the future? Mm-hmm. So, Marie, let's talk about uh, some of the protests that have happened here locally. Uh, you've been on the program uh, several times over the past few months talking about the protest of uh, the Atlantic Sunrise uh, pipeline in Lancaster and Lebanon counties, mostly covers uh, several counties throughout uh, Pennsylvania. So what are the big concerns? What are the protests? What are the biggest objections to uh, that, that pipeline? Well, you know, I'd say broadly what's driving the opposition to pipelines is there are multiple things going on. I think first there really is a real organized, you know, anti-fracking movement, anti-shale gas movement among some environmental groups. And and they've just shifted from, you know, the upstream, the drill rigs uh, to the pipelines because that's where a lot of the action is now. But beyond that organized environmental opposition, uh, I think... Uh, there is a lot of real grassroots opposition because, frankly, this entire shale boom, whether it's those drill rigs, whether it's compressor stations, power plants, or pipelines, it just affects a lot of people. It's a very dispersed kind of infrastructure, so it touches a lot of people's backyards. And the concerns around the pipelines, I'd say, they are really coming from both sides of the political spectrum because, you know, you have people on the left who are concerned, uh, you know, perhaps about climate change or other environmental impacts. But people on the right, uh, conservatives, also feel like this is the power of eminent domain, which these companies get when they uh, get a certificate from FERC to build a pipeline. They can take your property. Um, they can build a pipeline through it. I mean, it's underground. They say you can, you know, you can still use the surface. Uh, you can't build a building on it. But, but people feel like they're really being pushed around. They feel like they have no power, um, and especially since. You know, as we've mentioned, this agency almost never says no to a project. Um, Many are really shocked to learn that their private property isn't sacred and it can be taken. So I'd say also part of this whole boom was sold as it's American. It's our domestic gas. It's for us. And since we have more of that, more gas than we are expected to use soon, um, as people see it being exported, that also makes them angry because they're like, you know, hey, that okay, great for American geopolitical whatever, but it's my backyard and you're just shipping it overseas. Well, that brings up a point. In fact, uh, one of our listeners, Robert, has an email here said, I have yet to find anyone that will tell me how a pipeline to the coast that will probably be used as a hub for ships to transport the gas overseas benefits America. Uh, Marie, going back to what you were just referring to with eminent domain, this is one of the the issues that makes the homeowners, the property owners, angriest is that some of their property can be taken by eminent domain, but yet the gas can be shipped overseas, or when I say overseas, Canada, Mexico, and even uh, other overseas. Yeah, well... We are sending a lot of gas to Mexico already, by the way. So, And there's a big uh, export terminal being built along the Chesapeake Bay, um, Dominion's Cove Point. 
project, which is expected to come online at the end of this year. So, yeah, I understand people's uh, sentiments around that. I mean, it does strengthen us geopolitically, as as the Trump administration likes to call it, energy dominance. Um, The term used to be energy independence. But I think that's just like anything else. There's a trade-off. And, uh, you know, is it... um, if you're on the ground and it's your property and you're concerned about your property values or your safety because, you know, sometimes there are accidents. It's like, you know, as I said, this was this whole boom was really sold to people as it's for America. It's our American natural gas and people aren't happy about it. Let's take a call from Frank in Lancaster County. Frank, you're on the air. Oh, good morning. morning. Uh, I uh, worked around the gas industry for a few years. I'm retired now. But I found a lot of the protests here in Lancaster County uh, were from uh, NIMBYs, <laughs> not, my, not in my backyard, and I don't blame them. I have a place up uh, in the in up in state, and I have four gas lines running, well, gas and oil. Um, and I think that we need the natural gas. I know I, I see it as a bridge. Also, I see it as a much much cleaner uh, fuel than. Uh, coal and oil, and um, I'd like. I think the industry needs regulated. Um, good regulation is good, <laughs> and that's my comment. All right, Frank. Thank you very much for your call. NIMBY, not in my backyard, and uh, this is something that, uh, whether it's a pipeline, any kind of major project, you're going to have people who are going to say that, uh, I do not want that in my backyard, worried about property values, worried about uh, the environment, worried about traffic, depending on what the, what the uh, w- you know, what the project is. But, Marie, you've... Uh, been amongst uh, the, these protesters, the people who have protested and opposed the, the Atlantic Sunrise project for some time now. Is that part of it? The uh, NIMBY syndrome? Of course. I, but as I said, this whole boom, of course, that's part of it. And But people have valid concerns. I mean, sometimes, rarely, these things explode and kill people. Um, also, you know, people anecdotally saying people don't want to buy my property anymore because of this pipeline. Um all kinds of concerns. Of course, there's NIMBYism on any kind of project um, it's, that that exists. But, you know, also, I said, I, I really do feel like this, the pushback to the entire shale boom on the ground is just because it it's very dispersed. It ends up touching a lot of people's lives. And when people feel like they have absolutely no recourse to do anything, because, you know, the federal regulator here just always says yes, and they feel like they pay lip service to public input, um, people just get angry. I think, why do people take to the streets about anything? Uh, mm-hmm. They feel like that's their kind of, that's all they can do. Uh, Jamie, what's behind the surge in pipeline proposals, uh, specifically in uh, Pennsylvania, Ohio, and West Virginia? Yeah, well, so part of it is simply that the pipeline network hadn't been built with the idea that there was a huge amount of gas in the region. It wasn't constructed to take a lot of gas out in all directions. So some of the projects you've seen over the last decade um, are are designed to deal with that. Um, But then, of course, there's a lot of new power plants fueled by natural gas, all the things we've been talking about. But then... On top of that, there's more than just sort of this, you know, economics 101 of supply and demand. What we heard from industry analysts is that there's too many projects, that the industry is overbuilding, and there's just not enough demand in the U.S. for all this gas. And some of this is is that the um, companies see demand outside the U.S., uh, and, um, and there are uh, – um, 
Kristen is absolutely right. There are a number of projects we found like that. Um, three newer pending Appalachian pipelines have space set aside to move gas to Canada. Um, another played up its proximity to the export terminal that's coming online in Maryland later this year. Um, and, and FERC doesn't say, hey, guys, you can't use eminent domain to take gas out of the country. Um, there was this one case where people specifically objected um, to that issue because much of the gas in the project would go to Canada. And um, FERC approved the pipeline in February saying, listen, exporting is a matter for the Energy Department to consider. And what they didn't mention is that the Energy Department automatically approves gas exports to Canada. Um, so as, as a result, we heard a lot of anger and suspicion when we talked to landowners that even even more gas on other new pipelines will end up going out of the country as well to, to more lucrative markets. But then on top of that, there's one more thing. It's not just exports. There, um, most of the pending Appalachian projects involve companies trying to build pipelines in part or almost entirely for utilities that they themselves own. Um, they say they're, they're doing this because their utilities need the pipelines. But analysts who have dug into some of these cases, you know, looking at the space in the existing pipeline network, um, insist that the need isn't there. Um, and so what they point out is that pipeline projects can be lucrative. FERC allows companies to charge rates that are higher than the profits utilities earn on their own infrastructure. The, the rates for the, pipe, the pipelines are higher. Um, so this is a new source of money for companies that they can get from their utility customers. Um, you know, through, through affiliates, obviously, it's parent companies, you know, owning a, um, a pipeline development company and, and also a utility. Um, and analysts and consumer advocates we talked to said that utility customers would get the raw end of that deal if an existing pipeline could serve them as well or if maybe no pipeline at all is needed. So let me just be clear here. I want to clarify, uh, because I'm trying to uh, you know, make clear to the audience uh, what FERC's responsibilities are. And you know, I go back to that quote from one of the former commissioners said that they don't have a whole lot of leeway. Is one of the, the, the things that they consider is whether there is too much gas in an area. I mean, whether uh, there is capacity in an area or whether an area where the pipeline is going, that gas is needed in those areas. That's a really good question. And, you know, I, I could see why that would be the assumption that there would be sort of deep analyses about this. Um, but um, FERC, FERC, what FERC has really wanted to do is is listen to the market. Um, and there's various ways you can do that. But, but the way they have tended to do that the, uh, and, and the way that the, uh, the companies have gotten accustomed to doing that is contracts. Uh, FERC wants to see a, um, you know, th this evidence that companies have signed contracts to use the space inside the pipeline for transporting gas. And so if those contracts are for, um, say, a gas supplier who wants to move its gas to Canada, that counts. Um, if, if the contract is, um, you know, it involves, um, you know, two, two sister companies owned by the same parent company, you know, again, as, as long as uh, FERC feels like, you know, it's like in the case of utility that, um, well, they're, they're going to take the gas. They're not going to try to skip out of the contract. They, they just want to know that it's a long-term binding contract. And then they, they feel like that's good evidence of market demand. You had uh, in, in your report, your reporting, you, you heard from people who said that's not a good way to do it, that you should not rely on contracts. Right. And there's certainly plenty of cases where contracts are a good sign of market demand um, and, and even market demand in the U.S. But there are other cases where, where it can um, kind of paper over other issues that are going on. Um, and so, 
at, we, we heard from from um, industry analysts, people who, um, for instance, a, a gentleman who told Marie, listen, I love the gas business. It's a great business. And so he's he's sort of offended by this because he feels like this is this is an overbuilding that's going to ripple and, and hurt a number of, of players in the business. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. As one of the top stories of 2017 on Smart Talk, this is a program from last summer that featured a discussion of an investigation into the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission that approves pipelines. On today's program, we're talking about natural gas pipelines and FERC, the federal agency that uh, approves those pipelines. And uh, there is, uh, you know, a few questions that the, this investigation has turned up. The investigation by WITF State Impact Pennsylvania reporter Marie Cusick and Kristen Lombardi and Jamie Smith Hopkins, reporters with the Center for Public Integrity. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at WITF. Org. Let's take a call from Gary in Juniata County. Gary, you're on the air. Hi, Scott. Thank you very much. Uh, this would be for, I guess, the Center for Public Integrity. The revolving door. I deal with it all the time with USDA and Monsanto. The people at Monsanto either go to USDA and sometimes are asked to approve the same projects they were working on at Monsanto. And now you have, um, I'm not going to pick on her because I think she's a wonderful person, but you had Pam Whitner, Whitmer on your show not even two years ago, and she actually helped me when I was doing energy audits for farms for, for Penn State. And now she's a spokesperson for UGI, and she's working on the plant in Shemokin Dam for UGI, and she just was a public utility commissioner. They don't even wait like a year, it seems like, before they just take another hat, and it makes it so hard for a regular person when the deck is so stacked against them because these people have the inside track, they know the legislatures, they know what they need to do, they know who they need to talk to, and a regular person has to start from square one and try to build a coalition and whatever, and it just makes it almost impossible with this revolving door. So I would ask them just to look and see how many PUC commissioners either went to FERC or went to, you know, uh, public or, you know, gas companies or whatever, and just to, to kind of track this revolving door. Thank you very much. Thank you for calling. Marie, you actually did uh, a series of stories on this. Uh, I don't know, how long ago was it? A year ago or so? I, I built like a year and a half ago just yeah. an interactive website that's still online. You can see it's a number of people from the past decade of um, the Rendell, Corbett, and Wolf administrations who um, have switched jobs back and forth between government and industry. Um, and and thank you for the suggestion uh, about looking at the PUC. But uh, I can say Jamie and Kristen have really dug into the, the FERC. Um, and, and I think it was less of a revolving door here and more of just kind of a one-way street. Uh, I think Kristen mentioned this earlier in the show, just the, the amount of people um, who are pretty much can easily find a job right after working for the government in the industry. Yeah, Kristen, you mentioned that 80% have gone from FERC to a job in the industry. What about the other way around? What about the the, the FERC commissioners? Where do they come from? Well, uh, Jamie did the revolving door on the commissioners, and we actually, I think, you know, chime in, Jamie, if I get this wrong, but there there are 35 former FERC commissioners, uh, you know, in the history of, of the agency's existence that we track. I mean, we tracked them all. Um, Jamie did all the, the hard work. And, um, 
you know, it is a one-way street in the sense that some of them were um, on state regulatory agencies or, or uh, state legislative uh, bodies before coming to FERC or maybe even federal agencies. Uh, Jamie can speak to that. Not everybody came from industry into FERC and then went out to industry, but almost always, 80% is, I think, a, a pretty shocking statistic, almost always they went to uh, energy companies or, you know, the consulting firms that really prop the industry up um, after they were commissioners. And what I thought was interesting is that a lot of the commissioners have become lobbyists uh, for the industry, and they will use that cachet. I mean, I saw this in the emails that I read uh, that we got through uh, FOIA. Hey, hey, Kristen, I'm going to interrupt you for a second because all of a sudden your line is cutting out. We're going to call you right back, okay? okay. All right. Jamie, so what about that? Yeah, uh, Kristen saw that in the email, sort of this, um, you know, this back and forth, both with um, former commissioners and with former staffers. Um, you know, they're they're still friendly, of course, with the folks they used to work with at FERC, um, and and you can see that in emails and uh, you know, sort of the the joking back and forth that that may happen in some cases. One of one of the emails from a former staffer, um, you know, was was sort of eye rolling about uh, protesters, you know, saying, oh, you know, they're they're just terrible. Um, so. It's um, it, it does you know as as the caller mentioned you know it does create this feeling for folks who are outside of that realm that it's it's hard to 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 have influence. Um, people have um, submitted thousands of comments to FERC on on various um, thousands and thousands if you count all the various pipeline projects. Um, it's it's not that FERC is not hearing from people through comments. They just don't have the same kind of face to face access that that uh, industry is getting. Uh, let's take another phone call from Shively in Mechanicsburg. Shively, you're on the air. Uh, yes, just a comment for those uh, where the pipeline is uh, run across their property, especially in the eminent domain cases, I think there ought to be a royalty applied uh, to the landowner. And second of all, I live in an area where the gas line is about 400 yards from my house, but the the gas company won't run a line up our street because there's only like six homes or so on the street. So they say it's not feasible for them. So really, you know, it's one of those things where I can't use the product, can't get the product. And uh, so it's, you know, the whole issue is a, a moot point to me as far as that goes. Uh, All right. Well, it. thank you very much for your call. So what about uh, a royalty? I, I mean, I, I think he's associating that. Kind of with with drilling, if someone's drilling on your property. Yeah, if you have leased your land and they're, you know, drilling under it and extracting gas from it, uh, depending on what kind of deal you negotiated, you're probably getting a royalty. Um, So that um, has seriously benefited a lot of people in the areas where the gas is being extracted. But when it comes to pipelines, I do want to make it clear that it's not just like your land gets taken and that's the end of the story. I mean, the companies, the pipeline companies do try really hard to negotiate with people. I mean, in some cases, they're building something and there are thousands of property owners. So um, they do, you know, offer people money, like offer people money, uh, try to negotiate an easement on their property. Some people are happy with it and, you know, go along with it and they're fine and they're like, great, you know, whatever you want to do. It's Again, it's underground. Um, you have to keep it clear so you can't build a building on it. But um, Fair market value? Are they I, offering I fair mean, market value? I can't speak to every you know negotiation uh, because I, I'm not privy to those, but certainly some people are fine with it. And uh, it's like, no big deal. Run a pipeline. Thanks for the money. Other people are really angry and feel like they're getting lowballed and feel like... Um, 
you know, they're just that's part of the frustration again. Um, they feel like if if it's not if they don't like the deal, then frankly, there's not much they can do about it because um, it could end up being taken through eminent domain. The the gist of your report is that. Uh, Obviously, that the public does not have the same kind of access, does not have uh, the same impact that people in the industry, people that are building these pipelines have. But, you know, one of the things that FERC probably would come back with is, well, look how many times we change the route of our our pipelines when the public says not here. I mean, we know in Atlantic Sunrise, I don't know how many times it's changed in Lancaster yeah, County. Yeah, it's changed that, a lot. You know that this is their response that they are responding to. Uh, you know the opponents or at least the people who have complaints about their route. What about that? Well, I mean, I guess I'd just say when you move it from one spot you end up affecting somebody else. So, you know, shifting it around and listening listening to people, again, you're just shifting who is getting impacted. So um, that may make one person happy and another person angry. Um, And also, again, I would just say that if when you look at their record of almost never denying a project, people who feel like we really don't want this, uh, we have no recourse there. It will get approved. It it just that's what happens. And, you know, the gentleman who just called mentioned um, that he can't connect to it. That's also the case in some of these projects. You know, people are like, I want natural gas service in my house. Um, but these lines we're talking about, they're the super highways of right. the system. Right. They're the big transmission lines. So um, yeah, yeah, it's to, not like the pipeline going onto the street. To, right. To build, to. The, yeah. to build those smaller distribution lines uh, takes money. And, and so people it's kind of like for some people, it's just all pain and no gain. Mm-hmm. Kristen, uh, you I, report. Just, sure. Sorry. Go ahead. I actually want to chime in here. I'm back. I wanted to chime and in. And you have here. a better line, too. Yeah, good. Well, my battery. I'm sorry. My battery was going. Ah. Um, so one of the things I, you know, I've never covered uh, the energy industry really before this project. Certainly never covered um, uh, fracking or, you know, natural gas. What I thought was so fascinating was the amount of effort that average citizens are required to put into to try to voice their concerns, to try to legitimize and validate their concerns um, with an agency that's supposed to be weighing the public interest. Um, one of the things I thought that was really interesting about this, this pipeline boom is that many of the pipelines, at least eight of them, are projects that are called greenfield uh, pipelines. They are not plowing existing corridors, you know, and tacking on to existing uh, pipeline corridors. They're not going through communities or terrain that that had uh, interstate pipelines before. They are plowing through places that never had this infrastructure. And so there's resistance A, because of that, they're taking people's property who never had a pipeline under it before, um, and they think, why should I, you know? Um, And B, they're going through terrain that is is pristine and undisturbed in a lot of cases, certainly in the Atlantic Coast Pipeline that Marie and I looked at. um, A huge portion of it, like at least 40%, is going through national forest land, it's going through the Blue Ridge Mountains, it's going to cut the Appalachian Trail. I actually was speaking to a source that said the Appalachian Trail will be cut nearly a dozen times by different new pipelines that are now being proposed. And so 
big, steep mountains, um, and they'll have to level those mountains a little bit. Um, and so for people who move to areas because they wanted to be out in the country in the, in the middle of this, you know, wilderness wonderland, so to speak, you know, um, they're really upset that this kind of infrastructure is going to be a permanent scar. They see it as a permanent scar. So it's not simply this is my backyard. It's also this is land that's in the public trust, um, conservation land where uh, communities had contributed their tax dollars to preserve land. That's being affected as well. Um, you know, these pipelines are boring under historic rivers or they're boring under drinking water aquifers. Um, and so I thought that was really fascinating, uh, A. And B, average commu- you know, community members, grassroots community uh, groups, um, hiring consultants, putting together reports, you know, hiring hydrologists and geologists and um, uh, archaeologists to put together these reports that energy companies, you know, can spend a lot of money on consultants to do all this work for them. But these, this is coming out of people's pocket. And then to have, to feel like, read this stuff. I mean, I had people tell me, like, I don't get any sense that they read, you know, these, these comments at all, that they read our work. That, um, and Jamie can talk um, about the Office of Public Participation, which was meant to address this feeling of helplessness. Jamie, what about that? Yeah, so um, actually sort of dating back really even before FERC, um, its predecessor agency, members of Congress are saying it's really hard for the public to participate in these highly complex cases and, and they need help. Uh, and so the year after FERC was um, established in 1977, the year after that, um, Congress um, passed a, a sort of sprawling legislation that included a mandate for an Office of Public Participation, um, which was to to help um, people participate. You know, it, it, it could, as as one of those things, um, actually give funding to to groups. I think the intention was sort of smaller groups that weren't well funded of people or even, say, small businesses um, that were, were trying to make their case to FERC. Uh, so that was 1978. Um, the office never opened. Um, the FERC's first chairman did make what seems like quite an effort to to get funding for it in the first year. He talked to the president about it. There was all this back and forth that we saw um, in uh, in transcripts at the time uh, to try to get funding, and it sort of got caught up um, in Congress over that, that funding for outside groups should should FERC be giving that funding. Um, but but there wasn't really an argument that there should be an office, um, and in fact. Um, uh, members of Congress pulled uh, FERC's chairman in to say, well, how, how come you haven't at least started the office? Nothing's stopping you from doing that. But it doesn't appear to have ever been started. Um, and it doesn't look like FERC ever tried to get funding again. Um, everybody we talked to said that they were not aware of, of any efforts, including longtime um, uh, staffers um, who recently left FERC. You know, I don't know so whether... it doesn't exist. I don't know whether you can comment on this. This may be an opinion. But Maybe in your in your reporting you found this, and one of you mentioned that one email uh, from a, a former commissioner. It almost sounds as if FERC is not taking protesters or opponents seriously. Okay, I mean you've established that there's not a good vehicle for them to make comments, but it almost sounds as if they're looking at oh it's the protesters again. We know what they're going to say, blah blah blah. I mean, is there some of that? 
I don't I don't know that they don't take them seriously. I think they feel like what they told us, who we the people we spoke to, was that they're at the wrong building. Either go down the street to Congress and change the law if you want us to have a broader regulatory role, or go to your state house if you don't like gas production, talk to those people. Um, I, I think they feel kind of under siege at times because, you know, people are getting arrested outside their offices, linking arms. Last summer, protesters showed up at FERC commissioners' homes um, to the point where they even um, basically canceled a public meeting they had and just live streamed it on the web because they were concerned about their security. Um, So they feel like this is really, you know, getting out of hand. One of the former FERC commissioners, uh, Donald Santa, who has now the national pipeline trade group he said i think these people need to adhere to the golden rule you know this you know things are things are just really tense so i don't know that they they don't take them seriously they just um feel feel rather under siege we only have about two minutes left and uh, there's so much more to cover but is there any move to reform how FERC goes through this process any of you want to take that one Sure. There, there's pending legislation to do that, um, but it, it doesn't look at the moment as, as if that's necessarily going to go anywhere. There have been previous efforts as well. Um, the legislation I know the best is, is one that would um, require FERC to, to do sort of these more comprehensive analyses looking um, uh, in particularly uh, um, in regions. So a region, for instance, um, like your region where there are a lot of projects looking at all these projects, figuring out are all these really needed, which is something FERC, they, they, FERC doesn't do that. Um, in fact, um, the the most recent former chairman of, of FERC had recommended um, such a uh, analysis. He, his point was it doesn't make sense to be building pipelines that aren't needed and could become stranded assets. You know, where you build them, they're supposed to be good for at least 50 years, and maybe they're not needed at all or only for, for the first eight. That, you know, that, that could be a problem. So there have there've certainly been people, um, you know, in official positions speaking about this, but so far it doesn't seem to be going anywhere. Hmm. And, I mean, I I have to mention this because it's been such a big news item here in central Pennsylvania when you talk about uh, the number of people who have been involved in opposing projects or protesting. The nuns in Lancaster County is the latest uh, group of nuns that uh, have have been protesting. I want to thank the three of you for being with us today, Uh, and I encourage everyone who hasn't heard the reports or hasn't read the report, go to our website, WITF.org, State Impact Pennsylvania, and uh, you can read all about it. It is a great report. I want to thank all three of you for being with us. This WITF State Impact Pennsylvania reporter Marie Cusick, Kristen Lombardi, and Jamie Smith Hopkins, reporters with the Center for Public Integrity. Thank you very much for being with us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. And I should mention that State Impact Pennsylvania is a collaborative effort to report on uh, WITF's, WITF's, how about Pennsylvania's energy economy. It's a collaborative effort between WITF and uh, WHYY in Philadelphia. 